for the uh, for the four or five or six of you that have been clapping during the meeting. Thank you for your involvement so far. I'm not looking for any kind of accolade at all. No, I'm not looking for any. I'm not looking for any kind of accolade. That's still not enough. But uh, no, we just uh, we like to encourage people in Oasis Church. So if you are visiting here and you're thinking, you know, should I clap or shouldn't I clap? You can clap when you want, and we really won't mind. So um, I'm going to clap myself. Gus Rosier, quality. Um, just to say, um, we are, as you know, we're, we're turning things around this morning. So uh, preach into communion, into worship. And uh, every Sunday at Oasis, before we meet, we have a prayer meeting before this meeting. Not that we don't pray the rest of the time as well. Um, but it's just good to get ourselves ready for us coming together as a church family. And this morning, Sarah, who leads that meeting... She came in with two simple messages for that meeting, and, and sometimes we bring them on, and sometimes we don't, just see how God kind of leads through it. And those two simple words were, number one, that, that God is a good father, and that he wants to give us fresh manna for today. Fresh manna for today. Manna is an Old Testament word that refers to God giving the people of Israel bread in the desert in order that they could live and exist as they were wandering around in the desert waiting for God to give them the promised land. She actually brought some bread in with her. She didn't even know we were doing communion, uh, but she brought some bread in. It's her own bread. She said that I could have it. I'm keeping it. Thank you very much, Sarah, for this bread. And it, it was a reminder that God in the Bible through Jesus said, look, if we ask God for things, he doesn't give us rocks when we ask him for things. He gives us bread. He gives us things that sustain us, that fulfill us, that satisfy us. God is a good God, and he wants us to know that this morning. Now, that has relevance, as we'll see in a minute, because the whole uh, subject that we're talking about today is Jesus, and Jesus announcing himself as being the bread of life. Uh, again, Sarah didn't know that, so she just came in with a word about bread, with a word about manna, which is in our scripture today, and with a word that God is a good father. And if you want to know anything about God today, know that he's a good father and he's really for you and not against you. So that's a freebie, as I often say at the beginning of a preach, a freebie from God. I wanted to uh, start with a quote that's going to come up on the screen in a moment, just before it does. Uh, some of us will know that we've been running... Workplace Alpha at Anthony Collins Solicitors in uh, the centre of Birmingham for the last couple of weeks. It's a mini Alpha course. We run it for five weeks. A small number of people come to hear about Jesus and ask all their different types of questions. It's a really good thing. We've been doing it for three or four or five years. Uh, and I love doing it. Get suited and booted and go and hang out with these, uh, these high-level professionals who have challenged me in some of their thinking. And it's good to be challenged sometimes. But one of, the, uh, one of the quotes that Alpha brings to the table very early on in its material is this one from a, gu a guy called Bernard Levin. Now, Bernard Levin was a, a former, former columnist for the Times newspaper. Wasn't a Christian, had no leaning towards Jesus or the church or anything like that. He died in 2004. But before he died, he said this. He said, countries like ours are full of people who have all the material comforts they desire, together with such non-material blessings as a happy family, and yet lead lives of quiet and at times noisy desperation, understanding nothing but the fact that there is a hole inside them, and however much food and drink they pour into it, however many motor cars and television sets they stuff it with, however many well-balanced children and loyal friends they parade around the edges of it, it aches. It aches. That's a quote from Bernard Levin. And I wonder this morning, for those of us that might describe ourselves as having good lives, fun lives, peaceful lives, 
full lives, whether we actually agree with that quote from Bernard Levin or not, whether we think with all the riches that we enjoy in the life that we do enjoy, whether we think we do have an ache in our heart that burns for something more. I know that I do. I know that often when Janie and the kids might be away uh, a weekend and I'm, I'm found home alone doing little jobs around the house, sometimes I find myself thinking, well, I've got a really nice house here, but boy, what would it be like to be living in a really posh house in, in Edgbaston with a, with a billiard table in the cellar and uh, with a floodlit AstroTurf football pitch in the back garden? Not a tennis a court, uh, in brackets, I wonder how Andy Murray's doing, I won't tell you, I don't know, but thank you for those of you that have come today rather than watch that. Uh, I wonder about having my own home hi-fi system, cinema system, so I don't have to go out and have that as well. I start thinking what it would be like to have a much nicer house. Then I start thinking, if only I had one of those really large MPVs, leather-clad, that I could drive around in and schmooze around town in this kind of big 4 by 4 even though you don't need them in the city, you really need them in the country. I want one of those, as long as I've got a soft-top um, uh, you know, racing car in the garage so that I can do the real driving in one of those. Then I start thinking, if only I could go and watch my beloved Manchester United, wherever they played across the world, wherever they played in whatever stadium, that would make me really happy. Then I start thinking, actually, because I'm really good in a kind of an alpha scenario and I'm good at sort of facilitating discussion and getting, drawing people out what they really think, I'd be really happy if I had my own Friday night TV chat show like Graham Norton. <laughs> I don't think it's that funny. I, th I think I'd be really good at that, you know. I can meet all these famous people. I get famous myself. You'd want to know me all of a sudden. It'd be great. <laughs> I start wondering about this kind of thing. So I, I know that I do in life. I start thinking I've got a pretty good life, to be honest with you, and that's a blessing from God. But I, I often start thinking there's, that I always want something more. Now, it could be the case, of course, that the people here today and, and people in the world at large, and this is just true, that haven't got a good life, that are really stretched. So you might be in a situation where you're ill or you've got family, a relationship breakdown, anything in your world that's really hard, you're out of work, looking for work, uh, you're struggling with addictions, whatever it, it could be, and you're thinking, well, I don't have a good life, so I don't have to agree with that quote from Bernard Levin, but I'd put it to you that actually you would have to. Because your desire for something more, your ache for something more, is simply to get out of whatever it is you're in. So if you are ill, you want to be better. Or if you are in relationship breakdown, family breakdown, whatever it is, you want that to be repaired. Uh, if you're out of work, generally you want to try and find work. If you're struggling in addictions, generally you want to try and beat them. So there's an ache for something more for those type of people. And in the broader sense, in the worldwide terms, if you're in, you know, suffering from war or terrorism or disease or famine or whatever it is, they too... All those people have an ache, a desire for something more. It's simply to be rescued from all of those things. So I find myself beginning to lean towards Bernard Levin, a man who had no leaning towards God, church, Christianity, and start thinking, hey, what is it about the human condition where we ache for something more? And we think that we can fulfill that ache by stuffing it full of stuff, generally good stuff. That's what we think, particularly in our culture today. TVs, nice homes, football pitches, MPVs. We're going to look at uh, something that Jesus said, which I've alluded to already today, which is the solution to that ache. It's a controversial and radical solution to that ache, that human condition of wanting something more, where Jesus puts himself forward as the answer. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me 
will never be thirsty. That's a radical claim. A radical claim. And it's either a radical claim that's radically true and therefore worth knowing about, or it's a horrible and devious lie that if not true, we need to dismiss pretty quickly. The question is, is it true or isn't it true? Is Jesus the bread of life? And can he give us satisfaction in whatever situation we're in, whether we think we're living a good life with nice stuff or a UK-based life where we're stretched because of injury or illness or unemployment or whatever it would be, or whether we're out there in that terrible world of war, disease, famine, persecution, Jesus says, I'm still the bread of life. I give you satisfaction and satisfaction to the full. That's a massive claim to make. And it's a claim that we'll be looking at this morning. The reason we're looking at that claim, and we're going to backtrack very quickly now, is because this year we believe God is speaking to us about what it, it means to be named. Not individually named, hopefully we all know what our own names are, and we don't need to remember those very much, but naming as a church. We are named as a church, and our church name is Oasis. We believe God has laid that on our hearts because he wants to know who we are, what our identity and our purpose is as a church. And we've looked at that over the last couple of weeks, and we found that God wants, us to remind, wants to remind us that we're a refuge, a refreshment, a rest, and a restoration church for the city, to bless the city. Not that we're the answer to the city's needs, but we play our part in it. But because God is reminding us of what our name is, we've been thinking and praying towards the end of last year about what God wanted to bring to us this year in terms of our preaching and we settled on the fact that he wanted us to remind us of his name. His name, who he is, what his identity is, and what his purpose is, because we are who we are in him. So we are a refuge and a rest and a restoration and a refreshment to people, because that's what God is to us as well. So we're in this new I Am series, because that's how God announces himself in the Bible. And last week, Adrian kicked that series off with, uh, with that... Uh, uh, again, kind of controversial news that Jesus himself presented himself as the great I am. Just as God in the Old Testament said, that's my title, Jesus came along and said, well, that's my title as well. What do you think of that? So all the great attributes of God, the fact that he's uncreated, he's self-sufficient, he's the source of all things, he's unchanging, he's ever-present, these were things that Jesus himself was declaring himself to be. Uncreated, self-sufficient, the source of all things, unchanging, ever-present. Jesus said, I am, and everybody didn't like that. But that's where we're going. We're, we're unpacking the I am's of God. And we're unpacking the I am's of God by looking at the I am's of Jesus, because he is God. And we're unpacking those because many people's question in life is, well, who am I anyway? I know that I'm Gus Rosier, but who is Gus Rosier? I mean, we won't answer the question. I could go off on a tandem at that point and try and uncover who I think I am. Ultimately, many of us ask that question, and with the, the, the sorts of things that we come up with when we ask that question, they'll appear behind me, Jesus gives us a solution to all of them. So if we are hungry, Jesus says that he's the bread of life. And if we are fearful, he says that he's the light of the world, and so on and so forth. They will come up at some point in a moment. There they go. So these are the great I am's. That's what we're looking at. And today, we're looking at Jesus saying that I am the bread of life. Hungry for something in life? Thirsty for something in life, Jesus is saying, I am the bread of life. And the way that we're going to do it is we're going to stick around in the Gospel of John. John is one of the Bible accounts of the life and times of Jesus. And in John chapter 6, there's a whole lot of stuff in there about Jesus that builds up to him saying, 
that I am the bread of life. We're going to look at that, dwell on it, unpack it, uncover it, understand it. And then we'll get to a point at the end where he makes these declarations and gives us some teaching about what those declarations mean, which ultimately lead us to the cross, the cross of Christ, which is why we're going to finish this time with communion, sharing the bread, which symbolizes the body of Jesus and the blood, uh, the juice, I should say, which symbolizes the blood of Jesus. We're not going to drink blood this morning. So that's what we're going to do. So we're going to start with John chapter 6. And uh, if you've got your Bibles, you can turn to it. If not, don't worry, the bits will come up along the way. And and how I'm going to do it is we're just going to read through it together and I'm going to unpack it with us as we go. So we're not going to read it in a big chunk and then come back and we teach it through. We're going to go through each section and see the story build up as we go through. So hang in there because I think this is really helpful stuff. So chapter 6, verse 1 goes like this. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing those who were ill. Jesus had been on a a healing ministry in Jerusalem uh, in the story before chapter 6. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. That's the first headline. In this chapter, the Jewish Passover festival was near. John wanted us to clock that. And he he uses the Jewish Passover festival as something that he relates to three times in the Gospel of John. The first time is when Jesus overturns the the, uh, tables in the temple. uh, And as a go at the marketeers who are trying to make the temple into kind of a money laundering environment. And that was a picture of Jesus coming and cleansing the temple. So that's one area where John mentions the Passover. Here he's mentioning it for the second time, and we'll see why as we go through. And the third time he mentions the Passover is around the death and resurrection of Jesus, uh, which is in all of the four Gospels, of course. So it's a headline that John is slapping on this chapter right before we get into it. Verse 5, when Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, where should we buy bread for all these people to eat? He asked this, only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Jesus already had in mind what he was going to do. The reason he already had in mind what he was going to do is because the Passover festival was near and he wanted there to be a link between what he was about to do and the Passover festival. So Jesus knew what he was going to do. He only asked Philip that question as a test to see what was going to happen in Philip's response. And just as an aside, Jesus always knows what he's going to do. Jesus is never out of control of anything, even though it looks like he might be. He always knows what he's going to do. He knows what he's going to do for us. He knows what he's going to do with us. He knows what he's going to do through us. And he knows what he's going to do sometimes in spite of us. Jesus always knows what he's going to do. If you need Jesus to do something for you today, he's a good God and he can fill your very need he's got bread to offer. Jesus already knows what he's going to do. So Philip, what does he say? Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite, he says, which is a lot of money for not a lot of food. When I go out to a restaurant, I like quite a nice healthy helping of food when I spend a lot of money, not just one bite. So that's Philip's response to Jesus at that point. And then another of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, he spoke up and said, well, here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, make the people sit down. 
because he knew what he was going to do. And there was plenty of grass in that place, which as an aside is a very interesting piece of information. You probably never spotted that. But the fact that there was grass at all that they were able to sit down on at that moment in time suggested that it was springtime. And did you know that at springtime, the Passover festival is near? And you may say, so what? But I think, interesting piece of information. It's detailing the gospel accounts that show us that the gospel accounts are true. When John wrote that down, he probably wasn't thinking, ah, green grass equals Passover festival, but we can look in now and know that he's actually telling the truth. So this is a true gospel account, green grass. You can go home with that today. So there's plenty of green grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there, at least probably double because there were women and children as well. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. And when they'd all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. That's a lot of bread that a lot of people have eaten. Jesus is the bread of life, remember, and the Passover feast is near. After the people saw the sign that Jesus performed, they began to say, man, what's going on here? This is quite interesting, isn't it? This is an interesting event to be part of. This is the Gus Rosier version of the Bible. They said this, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. What they're doing is they're throwing back to a prophetic claim that had been given to them by God through Moses that one would come, like Moses, to rescue them out of uh, desperation and fear and the all-conquering power of whoever it would be, and at that time it was the Romans, in order to give them release as an Israelite nation. It was a throwback to a a prophetic claim that God had given them, that a new king would come, a new saviour, a new rescuer. And they were saying, man, this Jesus bloke looks like he could be the one who that's it. But Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Why? Because he knew what he was going to do. And he wasn't about to be made a political king at that moment by that crowd because that wasn't the way that he was going to play things out. Jesus is in always control of what he's going to do. The story moves on. So that's the feeding of the 5,000. Then we move on to Jesus walking on the water. When evening came, the disciples went down to the lake. And when they got into a boat and set across the lake, sorry, when they got into a boat and set across the lake for Capernaum. But now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. And when they'd rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water. And they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. Little aside, Greek word for it is I, I like this, it's the same as I am. I don't know why the commentators or the uh, translators don't necessarily put it in at that point, but you could quite easily just have at that point, I am, don't be afraid, which I thought was very interesting. Jesus, again, proclaiming himself to be, to be God at that moment in time. But Jesus comes and walks on the water. Why does he do that at this point in time? It's a demonstration that he has power and authority over sea and storm. What does the Passover festival remember as part of the story of the Israelite people escaping from the clutches of Egypt? It was the separation of the Red Sea as they finally made their escape from Egypt in that famous story. And that was the command of God over storm and sea. 
Jesus himself walks on water to say, hello, I'm God. I have command over storm and sea as well. Remember that, Israelite people. So immediately after he does the feeding of the 5,000, John has Jesus walking on the water. It's a powerful story. The next day, the crowd that has stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his, with his disciples, but they'd gone away alone. Verse 24, once the crowds realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Which is a reasonable question because they had no idea how he'd managed to get over to the other side of the lake in the middle of the night when there was a storm on it. It was dark. He knew he'd walked on water. They didn't. Reasonable question. Jesus answered, as Jesus often does, with something that isn't the answer to the question they've just asked, which is interesting. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, and this is where it begins to get edgy, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate and had your fill. You ate and had your fill. You're only coming looking for me because you've seen a miracle worker at work and you want to see another work. You want to see another miracle. You're not coming for any other reason. You're not coming, you're not coming to find out who I am. You're coming, out, you're coming to find me to see what I can do. That's what Jesus is saying. And then he says this, Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. What's he saying there? He said, look, their work in getting into their boats and coming across the Sea of Galilee in search of Jesus was work to find a miracle, to find another work, if you will. And he's saying, do not work for food that spoils. That's just a waste of time doing that. What you should be doing is working to find me, to know who I am, to unravel who I am. And I keep telling you who I am, but you keep missing it. And by the way, I've got God's seal of approval on me. And if you only came with a sense that God's seal of approval is on me, boy, you'd be coming with much more purpose and intention than, you, than, than actually you are. That's what he meant when he was saying that. But they didn't get it. They asked him, verse 28, well, what, what, what must we do to do the works God requires? To which Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. What works must we do, they say. And Jesus said, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. There is only one work Jesus said that he's interested in, and that is the work that only God does. He's not interested in works, he's only interested in one work. And the one work that Jesus is interested in, that God is interested in, is the work that God does in them and us to reveal in them, in us, who Jesus is. That's the work of God. In order to, to take the blindness away from our eyes and the hardness in our hearts, so that we can, what, believe in the one that God has sent. That's the work of God. God opens our eyes. God opens our heart. God gives us humility. God gives us conviction of sin. It's the work of God. There is no work that we can do required by God to be accepted by God. It's only God work in us in order to receive him. The work of the Holy Spirit. That is grace. 
because we play no part in it. And that, in essence, is what Jesus was saying to the people then. Don't do your own works. Let God do a work in you because you're coming over here to look for another miracle. You're not looking for who I am. Your hearts are harder than you think they are. Are we willing to let God do that work in us? Are we willing to let God do that work in us? Are we willing to have humble hearts and say, all right, God, I want to see you. I want to know you. I want you to convict me of sin, if there's sin that needs to be convicted. Or are we pushing God away the whole time? Show me another miracle. Show me another act. Show me another good work and I might start giving you your attention. God says, just be open. Just be humble about it. And it appeared that when Jesus said that, they might start to get it. Because they say in the next verse, verse 30, well, what sign then shall shall you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our our ancestors, here it is, ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So it looks like Jesus' listeners want to become convinced of who Jesus is because they start relating back to the story of the rescue of the Israelite nation from Israel where manna was provided from heaven, hence Sarah's little um, word about God giving us fresh manna today, which I thought was amazing. And it looks like they want to know more. Their hearts look like they're opening up to God. But Jesus says to them this, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they say, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. You have seen me, and still you do not believe. You see, Jesus' hard-hearted listeners, and they are hard-hearted listeners, have just heard that the work of God is to believe in the one who sent. It's the work of God in our hearts, in their hearts, to believe in Jesus. And you would hope at that point that having seen Jesus doing the amazing things that Jesus had done, they would say, absolutely, we believe. We believe. Jesus, you're the one. We're following you. We want to love you. We want to do whatever you say. You're the main man. We believe. Here we are. We're going to bow before you. We're going to worship you. We're going to proclaim you as king. We don't want you as a political king. We just want you as someone who's going to lead us in love and light. You'd have thought that would happen. And haven't they just seen an amazing sign already that Jesus did the very day before when they ate the food that he actually provided for them in order for them not to be hungry? They've eaten a sign, if you will. And eaten a sign from God. They were part of a miracle which God said, there's some food. They ate it and they thought, this is amazing. Twelve baskets full of leftovers. They've seen a sign. And yet they're saying, give us a sign. Give us a sign. And Jesus said, what do you mean, give me, I've given you a sign. Give us a sign. These are not believers, these are cynics. These are cynical people who just want something more. And which is why Jesus said, look, I am the something more. Why don't you just believe me that I am the bread of life? Why don't you just believe me that whoever comes to me will never be hungry? Why don't you just believe me that whoever thirsts in me will never be thirsty? That's what Jesus says. But they say, No, I don't believe you. And Jesus says as much because he says, you have seen me and still you do not believe. 
And this is a common trait in so many people, even in our culture today. People can see something of Jesus and say, no, I'm just not going to believe it. I just don't believe it. And it's not surprising what happens next. Verse 41, and oh, at, the, at this, sorry, at this then, the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, well, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say I came down from heaven? They grumble, they argue, they start pushing Jesus away. And that's what happens in our culture today, I think, that when we start presenting Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life, and when we start presenting Jesus as the light of the world, and whether we start presenting as the resurrection and the life, and whether we start presenting Jesus as the bread of life, it all sounds amazingly good, and yet people want to argue and push it away. One of the ladies on a workplace, Alpha, on uh, Friday when we were there, we were chatting about a few things that uh, I've been speaking about in terms of who is Jesus. And then she said, look, I have got one question. Uh, and she said, I, I, I don't quite get it. I don't quite understand why when Jesus gives us so much, when God gives us so much, that he actually doesn't want anything back in return. I don't understand that. It sounds to me as though there's some kind of hidden agenda. I think I'd get it more if God demanded something of me. And that was clear, but it just seems like he's not being honest with me. He can't just keep giving and not allow me to give anything back. And I said to her, look, I don't want to put words into your mouth, but are you saying that this sounds too good to be true? And she said, well, yeah, that's, that's exactly what I'm saying. And she said, I, I know this has got something to do with love, but I'm, I, I don't really understand how it, how it works. And I said, well, surely it's the case that if someone just gives and someone just gives and someone just gives and you think, well, what do you want back? And they never want anything back. And they just keep on giving and keep on giving and keep on giving. Eventually you think this person is for me, does love me and is worth knowing about. And she said, yeah, I'm beginning to get that. And that's week two on Business Alpha when we have about 10 minutes to talk about things. I thought it was pretty amazing. So people argue, some people don't, but a lot of people do. And a lot of people push it away. But rather than throw mud at other people who might argue about who Jesus is, what about us today? What do we think? Who do we think Jesus is? Do you argue about what you know of Jesus? Do you push him away? Do you think, well, he says he's the bread of life, but he's not going to be for me? Let's not be arguers. Let's be people who are humble before him. And so what does Jesus do? Well, he tells them to stop. Jesus tells them to stop arguing. 43. Stop grumbling amongst yourselves. Stop grumbling, he said. And in brackets, although this isn't in the scripture, listen to this. He reiterates what he's just said. This is a power punch that comes. Stop grumbling amongst yourselves and listen to this. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes from heaven, which anyone can eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. This is huge teaching that Jesus is giving at this point to an antagonistic audience of people that actually don't want to receive it. But he doesn't stop him giving it. He's keeping going with his teaching. He says, I am the bread of life. Again, just in case anybody hadn't got it the first time. He pronounces that he's bread from heaven, that anyone can eat, that anyone can be in relationship with. Not just those Jews there and then, but anyone, anytime, place, anywhere. He says that anybody who eats him, yes, it's literally that, and we'll unpack that in a minute, will live forever. And he says 
that there's going to be a sacrifice of himself coming to give life to the whole world. All wrapped up in those few sentences. This is big stuff. This is stuff that turns your head and think, truth or lie? Truth or lie? Radical truth or horrible lie? Which one is it? Is Jesus off his head? Is he someone who's trying to, trying to catch us all out and say things that are just totally ridiculous? Or is this the truth from God that he is the bread of life and life in him can be found in life to the full? He doesn't hold back. He gives them the answer to the question, you've got things in your life that you think you'll need. I am the answer. I give you satisfaction and satisfaction to the whole. Well, his arguments were so controversial that actually the arguing didn't stop. It goes on. Next verse. Then the Jews began to argue sharply amongst themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? They don't like that. This sounds barbaric. It sounds ballistic, cultish almost. It sounds as though Jesus has completely lost it now. He's asking us to eat his flesh. This is ridiculous. And you can almost imagine Jesus stepping back as these people start punching their hands in the air and shouting at each other and saying, he can't say this, he can't say that, he can't say that. Who is he anyway? Joseph's son, Mary's son. We know them. This isn't, he's not the bread of life. This is rubbish. And it just goes higher and higher and higher. And you can imagine Jesus just kind of sitting there or standing there watching them all as they get really het up about the truth that he's delivering to them. Jesus is all right to spend time watching us get antagonistic about him. He doesn't mind because he knows what he's doing. He's all right about that. But we can imagine the scene. And then he speaks up again. And in his kind of looking on in what's going on, you might imagine at this point that he's, gonna, he's actually going to come in and turn everything down, calm everything down. I'm just going to calm this whole thing down so that everybody's ready to listen again to what I'm really going to say. I might even just pop in a little miracle so I've caught their attention. But you know what? He does the complete opposite. He raises the bar even further. This next section, they really hate. He says this, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise them up at the last day for my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. And whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He doesn't turn it down. He turns it up. He ramps it up. He says, well, you've heard so much so far and you really don't like it, but have some of this. And he introduces eating flesh even more. And he introduces the lovely concept, I love Jesus for this, of drinking blood. What do we know the Jews hate the most? drinking blood absolutely hate the fact it's in their laws and their regulations don't tell us to drink blood who are you this is a horrendous moment but Jesus surely with a cheeky little smile secretly as he looked around to his disciples I'm sure so I'm going to do the drinking blood one now watch this and so he introduces the whole concept of drinking blood eating flesh drinking blood eating flesh drinking blood I'm the bread of life what do you think of that what do you think of that what is Jesus saying well, Jesus doesn't actually explain what he says. This is where we need to bring some truth, some simplicity to this whole 
exchange. I love the exchange. I love the fact that you've got the feeding of the 5,000, which is Jesus providing, if you like, manna from heaven on the back of the Passover feast, which is the reminder of that whole story. Then he walks on water in order to remind everybody that he has power and dominion over sea and storm, because that's what happened when the Israelites were rescued from the Egyptian domination all those years ago. And then you get this exchange that Jesus is the bread of life, and they hate it, but he keeps going, and they hate it, and he keeps going. And they hate it even more, and he keeps going even more. And then he says, look, you just need to eat my flesh and drink my blood, because I am the bread of life, and whoever comes to me will never go hungry. What does he mean? There's two things he's saying here. There's one at surface level, which is quite simple. And there's one at a deeper level, which we know is obvious, but they didn't then, but we want to dwell on today. The first thing he's saying is that we need to chew and munch on Jesus, on him. We need to chew and munch on him. Why? Because the word that he uses for eating flesh is a word that his listeners would know was a word where animals chew on cud or grind on hay. And they take their time over doing it to digest it well so that they can enjoy the food to the best. That's what animals do when they chew the cud and they grind the hay. It's that kind of eating. It's a munching and a chewing and an ongoing munching and chewing. And Jesus basically says, look, you need to chew and munch on me. You need to chew and munch. You need to digest everything that I am. You don't want, you don't want just a quick little munch, a quick little bite of Jesus here and there along the way. You want to actually take your time dwelling on who I am. And you guys, you're just here for a quick miracle, and then you go, go, away, go, go home and perhaps say, oh, I had a good feel today by this bloke, but never give me a second thought. I want you to dwell on me, to think on me, to chew on me, to munch on me. That's all I want you to do. That's what eating my flesh is all about. Chewing on me and munching on me. And you know what? That teaching in and of itself, on its own, was enough to cause people to think, oh, well, I can't do that. I can't do that. Because verse 60 and 68 are absolute shockers because it says, on hearing this, many of his disciples said, and these are disciples, people that were following Jesus up to this point, many of his disciples said, this is hard teaching. Who can accept it? And then from this time, many of the disciples turned back and no longer followed him. What's that all about? Just dwelling on Jesus a little bit more, chewing on him, munching on him, really thinking about who he is and what he represents. Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, come with me, spend longer time with me. Don't be a quick fix, quick bite Christian. And many of the disciples, they say, well, I'm not doing that. I'm not following Jesus. I mean, he looks like a good bloke, but I haven't got time to spend time with him. Out of here. And they stop following him just because Jesus wants them to eat his flesh, chew on him, munch on him drink his blood. It's quite shocking. We're going to ask ourselves the question, the same thing though. Is that what we're like? Are we a bit quick bite Christian? Quick fix Christian? Here and there type Christian? Or are we genuinely ready to follow Jesus and follow Jesus and follow Jesus and really enjoy his presence? So that's the first level of teaching, chewing and munching on Jesus. And then the second one, of course, we know about because we're about to celebrate it in a moment or two. The body of, of Jesus and the blood of Jesus is pointing, obviously, to the cross of Christ. Now, we know that because we are post-cross. We're the other side of the cross. We know that the cross had the body of Jesus broken for us and the blood of Jesus shed for us. Of course, we know that. So when we read this scripture, we're in the understanding of that under, underlying meaning, the hidden meaning. 
the wonder of the cross of Christ. But Jesus' listeners, when they first heard that, they didn't have any idea. Jesus was giving them a bit of a clue about how his life was going to go, how his salvation plan was going to work out, how his victory was going to come, not through political overthrow, but through personal sacrifice. That's what he was doing. He was giving them a clue. And he was saying, look, if you eat my body, once you see my death and my resurrection, and if you drink my blood, once you understand the impact of what that means, boy, your lives are going to change. And I'm going to do something for you, the like of which you've never seen before. That's what he was giving them a clue to. He said, look, chew on me, munch on me, follow me, please come with me. Don't, be, don't stand back and think, well, a little quick glimpse of Jesus and that's enough. I want you to keep on going with me all the way, all the way, all the way. Come with me to the cross. And then when you get to the cross, you'll see an amazing miracle take place. That's what he was doing. And of course, we know that for us today, the cross is the pinnacle of the Christian faith. Because the cross has given all that we need in order to know that Jesus is the bread of life. If we need anything, the cross is the solution to the problem. So the cross gives us freedom when we are in slavery to sin. So if we are struggling with whatever addiction we may have in your life, there's something in your life that has power over you that you can't break free from it. Bad language, perhaps it is. Some kind of addiction habit, whatever it is. Sexual persuasion towards something that's dodgy. You can't break it. The cross brings freedom from that. You think you're going to get satisfaction from that. Jesus says, I bring you satisfaction. I can free you from that, and you can find relationship and fulfillment in me. Freedom. Cleansing. Many of us feel guilty, don't we, when we get up to mischief that we shouldn't be getting up to. I know I do when I do wrong things, say wrong things. I've got a reputation in my house for saying inappropriate things at certain times. I'm learning not to be politically incorrect because I keep saying things that are politically incorrect. I do it less so in the public arena, but at home my kids will say, my wife, God, you can't say that, Gus. You know, I'm not squeaky clean. Unfortunately, most of these wrong things stay at home, but I get them wrong. And if, if, if I'm not careful, I could start thinking, I, I just can't say anything because I, I'm going to upset people and church leader can't say things wrong and all the rest of it. I can carry guilt about those things. But the cross cleanses me from that because Jesus has wiped it clean. It doesn't matter. It doesn't mean I don't want to be good and say the right things and be appropriate. But I'm cleansed from that. I don't feel guilty about it. I just say, well, I got that wrong. Sorry about that, Jesus. Not flippantly, but genuinely. And then he takes me on again. Then you have reconciliation and peace with God. Surely that's a wonderful thing to be attracted by. Being reconciled to God. Whenever we are out of kilter with one another, because we have upset one another through whatever thing, you know, don't you, that there's a, that thing in your heart that causes you to feel uneasy. You just feel uneasy with people. So if you've had an argument with your wife or husband or partner or your brother or sister or anybody, you know that you're carrying something inside your spirit that makes you feel uncomfortable. I know I do again. I don't like it. And it's only pride that stops me sorting it out quicker than I do. And eventually, sometimes, when I've prayed to God about it, I'll take the courage and, and, and take the initiative and say, look, let's get this sorted out. Let's ask for forgiveness and let's get it all clear. When it's all clear, don't you feel a tremendous weight coming off you emotionally? I think you do. And it's the same with God. God in heaven absolutely loves us, sin's a problem, wants a relationship with, with us, but we carry that sense of oh, uneasiness with God until we're reconciled to him. And Jesus brings that reconciliation through the death and resurrection. And then we have confidence to be sons and daughters of God, to receive God's love to the full, to know the goodness of God as our good Father giving us bread from heaven because we're his sons and daughters. We can't be sons and daughters without the cross of Christ. And then we've got eternal acceptance and relationship with God as a result of the cross. God's never going to reject us. He's only going to be for us and not against us. And these are all things that Jesus is pointing to when he talks about the bread of his body being broken and the blood being poured out 
and drunk by us, if you will. It's not, as I say, it's not a ritual thing. We don't ever drink the blood of Jesus. We don't ever eat his flesh, literally. That would be odd at, at best and absolutely weird and, and, and disgusting, probably, at worst. But when we take the bread and we take the juice, as we will do, as I say in a few moments, we remember Jesus' body broken for us and the tremendous freedom and acceptance and reconciliation and confidence and relationship that we have with God as a result. That's not a small thing, that's a massive thing. It's a wonderful thing. So that's, that's that chapter. Can you see how Jesus builds up to this point of saying, look, I am, I am, I am the bread of life. Full satisfaction is found in me. You won't find it in anything else, you'll find it in him. And he wants us to chew on him, and he wants to chew on the cross of Christ. The question is, how do we do it? How do we do that? How do we know that what he says is true? Because all this can be teaching that gets you excited to some extent. I've certainly been really uh, encouraged and uh, enthused by what I've been reading this week, particularly in terms of the whole chapter. But how do we do it? Because it's all very well to say Jesus can satisfy. What does it look like in life? And how can we actually take steps towards knowing that's true? Well, I want to say there's, there's three things that we can do. That we can receive Jesus, we can believe Jesus, and then we can live by Jesus. Receive him, believe him, and live by him. Receiving Jesus, what do I mean by that? Well, I think there's three groups of people in this category. There's those that are not sure. There's those that uh, have become unsure, so they were sure about this and aren't anymore. And there's those that are sure, but aren't particularly full up with what they think they're sure of. So someone this morning, perhaps you're here this morning, you're unsure. You're not sure whether Jesus is the bread of life. You're not sure whether he gives satisfaction and satisfaction to the full. I want to encourage you to dwell a little bit on Jesus. Obviously, the whole purpose of this message is to get you to realize that Jesus wants us to dwell on him. So if you're unsure about Jesus, at least have a look. Don't be like the people in the Bible that wanted a little bite-sized miracle here and there. He wanted them to get right up close and personal and spend some time looking at him, dwelling on him, munching on him, chewing on him, marveling at him, musing on him. If you're an unsure person, somehow do that. You might want to get along to some kind of alpha course the like of which I've mentioned, that gives you an opportunity to dwell on that kind of thing. So don't dismiss him. Think, oh, this sounds too good to be true. I'm going to explore him. That's the first thing I'd ask you to do. If you've become unsure, so this is somebody who was certain of the fact that Jesus is the bread of life and can bring satisfaction to the full, but you've become, uh, if you like, persuaded by the bread of the world, if you will. So perhaps it is money or sex or power or fame that, is your, that rings your bell and you've become distracted and you've started going towards that rather than what you know to be true. I just ask you to get on your knees, really, and repent and say, I've, I've been going the wrong way and I need to go back Jesus' way. I want to receive him afresh and new this morning. And you can do that this morning. And even as I'm speaking, some of you may be thinking, actually, that is entirely me. I know that's me. I've gone one, gone one route, loved Jesus, followed him wholeheartedly, but I've become a bite-sized Christian that doesn't really follow him at all. I need to turn it around and go the other way. And then, you might have been somebody that is sure that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the bread of life, but you're not really an eat-and-drink Christian. You're a nibbler. You don't really take it all in. You don't chew in your munch. You just have a little more of that, and then you leave it. And then you come back and you have a little morsel, a little, like a peanut now and again, a peanut of Jesus, and a, you know, a little crisp of Jesus, rather than a full feast. Jesus wants us to eat and drink on him. And I'd encourage you to stop 
fasting from Jesus, if you will, but start feasting on him. Start feasting on him. So that's the receiving bit. Believing, how, how does that work? We can want to receive Jesus, whether we're unsure, sure, but now not sure, or want to be more sure. How do we believe it? I'll tell you what, all we do is we do that. We say, look, I want to believe it. I want to believe this, God. Here's my heart. I'm humble before you. I open my heart. I open my mind. I open the whole of my body, my thinking, my intellect. I ask you to give me a gift of faith. Why? Because it's the work of God that causes us to believe in him. It's not our work. So you can, do, you can start to take steps of exploring him and know some things to do that are right, but ask God to give you a gift of faith to believe in the one whom he's sent. That is a gift of faith. It's not just intellectual uh, excellence that causes us to follow Jesus. It's a gift of faith. And any of us here that say we're followers of Jesus will know there's been a moment in our life or moments when God gives us a gift of faith to follow him and believe in him. So that's believing in Jesus. And then finally, living Jesus' way. How do we live in the knowledge that Jesus is the bread of life? Again, it's the same message. He's ongoing, chewing and munching on Jesus. What does that look like? Here are four or five things to help us know whether we do that. The first is regular reflection and thanksgiving on his body and his blood. It's why we're doing communion today. We want to keep rooting our faith on the cross of Christ. We're going to do it because we want to remember it. It does us good when we do. There is joy, there's a sense of sorrow, there's a sense of wonder and amazement that Jesus could do it. It's so good to focus regularly on the cross of Christ and all of that means. Do that more if you're not doing it already. Second, slightly controversial perhaps, but I think it's a good one, is regular gathering with Christians to enjoy a thoroughly good feed. Regular gathering with Christians to enjoy a thoroughly good feed. I like coming to church on a Sunday morning to worship and hear the word of God with other Christians because I feel like I'm being fed and I personally enjoy that. I enjoyed that when I wasn't in the church as a leader, when I was just a businessman working quite long hours in the IT world. I enjoyed coming to church on a Sunday with other Christians to feed and really big myself up in God, obviously, for the week that was ahead. I want to encourage us whatever your church, whatever your world situation is, to try and make gathering with Christians a priority. It's good to be together. It says in the Bible, do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but carry on doing, doing so, Hebrews 10. So that's what we can do. But gathering together is not just one thing. What about time on your own with Jesus too, the third thing? That gives you the unique opportunity to grow in your relationship with God, to chew and munch with Jesus, you and him. Time on your own. Yes, gather together with Christians. doesn't have to be on a Sunday, any other context, but certainly spend some time on your own doing that as well. And then fourthly, regular times of accountability with those who you know and you trust, who obviously are Christians, who are followers of Jesus. Find some people that you really do connect heart with. This year in Oasis, as you'll know, we're trying to really ramp up the whole small, small group world. We want people to get known and love each other and really support each other within a small group context because that's the best place where you build relationship. In our uh, weekly Tuesday meetings that we have as a, an eldership and leadership team uh, on Tuesday mornings, we often share life with one another. We're open about how we're doing. We don't hide from one another. We don't pretend to be doing well if we're not doing well. 
we share, we share if we're not doing well, and we get each other to encourage each other. So, so accountability is really important, and we keep pushing the centered playlist that we talked about towards the end of last year to help us do that. Get into your twos or threes or fours, and start checking out with each other how you're really doing with each other, with yourselves, and with God. And then finally, regularly knowing and applying his teaching in everyday life so that people can recognize that being followers of Jesus do make a difference. We've got to know what God wants us to do, and we've got to apply it. How do we know what God wants us to do? We have to know the Bible a little bit. We have to be in the Word of God a little bit, so that we can know how he wants to be, so that we can be radically different to everybody else in their world experience of how to do certain things in life. If we don't know what the Word of God says, if we don't know what Jesus' teaching is, how can we do that? We might think we're just nice people, which is fine, but to be radically different like Jesus was, we've got to know how he wants us to be radically different. So we've got to get a little bit in the Word of God. It doesn't have to be a huge amount. It doesn't have to be half an hour in the Word of God every day. It could be as I've, I was in somebody's house the other day and they had a verse in the toilet on the door. I always think a verse in the toilet on the door is a good place for it because, you know, at some point or another, we're going to be on the toilet and we're going to be looking at the door. I know it's the wrong imagery, but that's, you know, get something of the wording and then start applying it. Don't just know it. It's head knowledge. Start living it out. So if someone does have a go at you at work, what does Jesus says to forgive them? He doesn't say have a go at them back or back chat or make it worse for them. Little example. So those are five things to help us live God's way. And as we do those things, we will become more and more aware that God, through Jesus, satisfies our every need. He actually, you will see the more that you live the truth, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. That's what the word of God says. If you don't live it, you won't know it. Because all you think is it's factual intellectual knowledge rather than actual truth to be outworked. Five things to help us. So for the final time, it is the final time. Here it is. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry and whoever believes in me will never go thirsty. The question is, do we believe that? Is that truth? Is that radical truth? Or is that horrible lie? It's my charge to us this morning that it's the wonderful truth that Jesus offers. And it's the wonderful truth that Jesus offers because he's demonstrated through his death and resurrection on the cross, which is why we wanted to spend some time, A, remembering that, and then B, worshipping him for all we've got, knowing that he, he meets us in every hour of need that we have. Why don't we stand?